Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Ramasong. This week, we have a pretty good representation of our regular roundtables, uh, regulars, uh, with uh, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, joining us from uh, Greece. And we're, from highly, we're highly envious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and from Beacon Hill inside his car, not so highly envious of that, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy. And of course, as always, along with us, our station manager, Peter J. Hey. Good morning, everyone. We are going to be looking at a certain topic that's uh, very topical today, because uh, as we record this edition of Mon More Perfect Union, it is the 1st of September, 2022. And this coming Monday, the 5th, will America will be celebrating Labor Day. Now, that's a day set aside to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the American laborer. It is celebrated by many with friends and family at backyard barbecues. And it's just a gathering and a time to relax and take the day off. But what is the role of organized labor, specifically labor unions, in today's workplace? Are unions still seen as vital to the American worker? Attempts to unionize within larger corporations have uh, been in the news of late, so there does seem to be some resurgent. We can talk particularly of uh, Starbucks and Amazon, because they seem to be getting the most play in the news. And these attempts have led to labor insisting that management has uh, taken steps to illegally block these uh, through intimidation and subterfuge. Now, this age-old battle between job creators and labor is something that we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Natalia Linos, could you lead off on this? Uh, good morning, Nick. Good morning, everyone. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that I'm joining you from Greece, and I have noticed a big difference between the way that labor is celebrated and, and unions um, globally. And, you know, obviously, everybody, the you know, the audience knows that I have a public health background, and unions are, are some of the strongest um, advocates for health and protections in the workplace. So, you know, clearly they play a very, very important role, not only for um, better wages, but also better conditions. And I think with COVID, we have seen so clearly how important workplace conditions are. Uh, those of us who were privileged enough to work from home were able in many regards to avoid getting sick, you know, the days, the early days when there were no vaccines, no treatments, but those who were essential workers who were out in the field had to rely on workplaces protecting them. And we saw many workplaces failing, meat packing, um, you know, other factories, we saw huge outbreaks. So I think unions and the role of you know, workplace safety is critical in my mind as um, you know, how do we ensure that people spend their days in productive work, but also in a way that is uh, protective of their health, their well-being, 
and you know their their aspirations to to be part of our community. So, um, you know, it's been this is a separate point, and maybe later we can sort of talk about it separately. As a parent during you know school motions in Brooklyn, our teachers union went on strike, which was quite shocking to see. But I think it's quite interesting that you know, just depending on your perspective as a parent, as a public health person, as a teacher your opinions about unions might change. And the union type, the police union or the teachers union, you might have different views. But I think overall supporting unions and seeing the decline in unions in the United States is something to be concerned about. Um, and you know, May 1st is the, the date that a lot of, you know, globally, a lot of people celebrate labor. And, and it is celebrated in a more sort of political way than what you described, getting together as families to have a barbecue. It's it's more political than that. So I'm really curious, especially with, you know, Michael Walker Jones and those of you who are a bit older than me to talk about what you've seen across time. And I know teacher unions is something you know a lot about, Michael. Oh yeah. I and I was gonna say I'm not seeing it, this resurgence that we're, you know, you know, that's being described out in the media with regard to labor unions. As a matter of fact, I'm seeing just the opposite in certain sections of this country. For example, in the South, throughout all of the South, the one of their main promotional items, especially through their government, is this anti-union fervor, which they use to try to attract businesses. And it has permeated down to the general population in a way that many individual citizens in the South will actually move against their own personal self-interest. Let me give you an example. In Alabama, where I do some consulting work, Amazon uh, employees uh, in one of their plants there, uh, actually warehouses there, attempted to try to unionize. And the government, as well as the business, government not so publicly, but quietly in the background, and other businesses were telling people, why would you want to pay someone to do something for you uh, when the company's already taking care of your interests? You've already have health insurance and all of these disgruntled employees are not going to look after your best interest. Uh, and most of them are slackers and that's why they want the union protection, et cetera. And many of the employees bought into this. We're very fortunate in the Northeast in that unionism is not something that the general population nor the government fears. As a matter of fact, our government, uh, thank you very much, Jeff, I think takes a very deep interest and a deep caring for the fact that we are labor oriented. So, you know, again, we've got to be careful here that I don't see this national resurgence uh, with regard to unionism or the organizing. And unfortunately, we are behind the rest of the world in this. Many of the places in the rest of the world, uh, especially the industrialized nations, uh, revere and uh, I think appreciate their labor uh, movement. I think you're right. I think the reason we're seeing uh, in the media saying that there's a resurgence is the fact that it's going into an area that has been sorely lacking in representation. And we're talking about retail workers, we're talking about uh, restaurants, cafes, that sort of thing. Starbucks and Amazon, of course, being two huge employers on the, in that type of thing. Yeah, they're all in the service sector, basically. They're all in the service sector, and the service sector has very is very rarely, and when it is represented, it's not very powerful. They're starting to move up a little bit, and you're right about the intimidation. 
The intimidation uh, exists on every level. Um, they use uh, uh, what they call a lot of what Amazon did is they would call mandatory uh, store meetings, company meetings. You had to be there. And if you weren't, they would, uh, you know, they would be aware of it. And they were called at the same time as there were union information meetings. Uh, there's been, they have, uh, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, has all, all already taken steps and said that there has to be a revote in that Amazon warehouse because of tactics like this. Whether or not that's going to succeed the second time around, we'll just have to wait and see. But there, there's a recognition that management had overstepped. Uh, and again, like I said at the top, it's, it's job creator against the labor who has the right to demand more. And I think, Nick, it is really important to highlight that, you know, in recent years, we've seen this increase in the gig economy, companies like Lyft and Uber, you know, Grubhub, who are actually went through a lot of efforts to misclassify their employees so that they weren't considered employees. They were considered independent contractors that they didn't have access to any benefits or any. So I think Michael is right that actually we've seen decades of movement towards much less protection. Mm. And now maybe there's a little bit of pushback. And it's interesting, you know, since we are in Massachusetts and, you know, there is a election coming up really soon that, you know, there was a, there's a labor uh, lawyer from Brookline, Chandless uh, Rarden, who's running for uh, attorney general, who has, you know, worked a lot in that, in, in protecting sort of the rights of those in the, the gig economy. It is pretty important for us to to recognize those trends as, you know, who are we talking about? And globally, while mm -hmm. I did mention that there are a lot more unions, the reality is that in many parts of the world, there is so many people who are in the informal labor market and they are not protected either. Informer, you know, street vendors, people who sell food and things like that, they have zero protections, they have zero. So again, let's not forget the sort of the invisible workforce um, also. Well, you bring, bring up the gig economy and the fact that we know in most recent elections, uh, questions have been on the ballot with respect to whether or not they are in fact independent contractors or not. And it's interesting to see how the employers really sort of push the envelope on the meaning of independent contracting. And there are legal tests for that. Do you use your own tools when you are doing the work? Do you receive instructions from your employer specifically how to do the work? Or are you given a global instruction? I need this done, figure it out. That gets closer to say, People in the trades, you hire someone to redo a bathroom, do work around the house. Clearly, that's an independent contractor because you talk in the most global way about what you want. They find ways to get it done. They solve the problems. They come in, they go, they send you a bill. So that's a classic definition. But when you look at things like Uber and Lyft, yes, you can choose your hours, but the way that you do the work is really, really tightly defined on a per hour basis, all, every single step of it. And it's interesting to see how that whole gig economy is evolving and where it might go over the next decade. But in other areas of the service sector, uh, restaurants, retail, the whole hospitality industry, as well as what, as you point out, with what's going on with Amazon, uh, with uh, warehouse workers, they are becoming the new union replacement bit by bit for what used to be a, a really significant manufacturing sector when I was growing up uh, way back when. Uh, and the manufacturing sector basically having been offshored 
to such a great extent and automated to such a great extent, uh, unions uh, in that arena gradually unraveled, became minimized. Um, and in a larger sense, the one percenters and everybody else uh, are you know, between a plutocracy and everyone else. There is uh, obviously a tension. And I think that unions are participating in managing that tension. You know, this brings up a very interesting historical point, too. I know a few weeks ago, we had Peter Canales on, and mm -hmm. we talked about uh, John Marshall Harlan. And one of the things that took place during his tenure on the Supreme Court was this, as you're presenting it, Pete, tension between the employers and the employees as to whether or not the employees could be represented at all or whether they were uh, in essence independent contractors now this was in markets like the steel industry and in other places uh and the court always uh between let's say 1880 and 1920 sided with the employers making it very tough for the employees to be recognized as a group um, sort of advocating for each other as a group. And in some ways, you, you know, we're into a similar kind of era. When you look at Starbucks, for example, is there a Starbucks uh, writ large that's a massive employer or is it individual franchise? If it's an individual franchise, does that particular employer now, if he or she has its, you know, uh, has their uh, have their employees looking to unionize, you know, I'm only looking at 10 or 12 people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who may work two shifts uh, during the day. And these folks are asking me about unionizing. Um, and in some ways, when you start looking at the argument, then, well, why would those folks want to join? a state or national union. Uh, I mean, what's the benefit for them when basically it's only 12 people? Why not have a representative work with the employer or why not have state rules and regulations that sort of outline a basic kind of contract for everybody, which gets at the point that I think Natalie and I are making about those who are underserved, underrepresented, uh, you know, the invisible folks. If there is, for example, <laughs> national health insurance hmm. serving all doesn't that take off that at least one benefit off the table when it comes to unionization if everybody has health insurance okay that's one less thing that collectively we have to go in there and sort of tussle with the uh, uh with the employer about if we all have uh some kind of minimum wage hmm. that a living wage doesn't that at least take off the table for those who are at the bottom level of the uh, employment strata? Uh, well, those you know, are certainly two of the very big ones right there, you yeah. know, compensation and benefits. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the small ones that would be the union unionization would be much more beneficial. The day to day, mm -hmm. how do you have to work? What do you have to do? What is your redress if you are written up? Where do you go from there? Do you agree mm. with this? How Grievances. far can you take that? And uh, full disclosure, my father was the chief negotiator for General Dynamics for over 20 years. At one time, the number one government contractor in the country, defense contractor. And he worked with Kraft's 
from aeronautics to space aeronautics to shipping, submarines. He worked crafts all across the board, negotiated every contract General Dynamics had at that time. And his attitude towards unions was that they were a useful tool for everybody, for the labor and for management. He was unusual in that aspect. He had to fight to keep a lot of things that he would he was told he could give. He might have given some he might not have given in negotiations, but they were never happy completely. But he stayed on that job for 20 years and kept getting the contracts that needed to be get that needed to be obtained. Well, the the old saw about negotiation and compromises, mm-hmm. everybody walks away feeling equally cheated. That's right. <laughs> 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 but when, when you talk about the history of the, of the unions, and Natalia was talking about uh, getting some insight from those of us who came up through it, my time, I go back to PATCO. That's mm-hmm. something I see as a watershed, the uh, con- uh, air controllers. Yeah. In one day, Reagan fired 11,359 air traffic controllers, 11,000 men and women gone. And he, we're fired, told, he fired a town. He fired a town. And he told him, you know, you have a, there's a lifetime ban on you ever reapplying for this position. You can't wow. do it. Now, that was set aside by Carter, uh, not Tom, sorry, Carter Clinton in 93. But right. it was that was a, that's a watershed for me. Mm. The and Patco was told by the NLRB, you're discredited. You're no longer a representative for anybody. And Patco dissolved. And I think that was something that just started the the real drop off in the strength of the unions mm-hmm. because they were shown that, you know, I, we can dissolve you. We can do anything we want by executive order. Little unusual air traffic controllers were considered, are considered to be government employees because they mm-hmm. work at FAA certified sites. They're going through it uh, exactly 25 years later. They had to go through it again. So that is the history that I come from, but also the history that goes back even further, because I can remember unions being very strong and very viable when I was a kid, mainly because of my father's involvement with them. Hmm. I, I want to get back to uh, something also to uh, Dr. Mike, you mentioned, uh, you know, in Starbucks and, and the key word that you put in there was franchise um, because Starbucks operates as a franchised operation for the most part uh, and has probably remarkably few uh, corporate stores. A franchisor and franchisee relationship is such that the franchisee is considered to be an independent business operator. They can set their own prices. They can apply guidelines for employment as they wish, but they are supposed to be reasonably autonomous and they enjoy the supposed benefits of having a robust business model and brand that they can franchise. But at the corporate level, the corporation is actually not allowed to mandate pricing at the street level. Uh, and there are several other things they can't do they to restrict the franchisee. And I, I bring all that up in, in light of the fact that what's been going on with Starbucks has been happening at the franchise level. And appropriately so, uh, that's the place where unions are able to make inroads with the you know one or two dozen employees. But I think at the corporate level, because obviously corporate has a vested interest in minimizing the damage, if you will, that uh, they seek to 
keep this from spreading like a virus from franchise to franchise to franchise. And and that will be a fight on many fronts for the unions. And whether or not it will continue to advance or not, I think remains to be seen. Yeah, I would agree that, you know, the the issues around small businesses uh, unionizing, uh, very complex and franchise. And, and that's why I threw it in. Having a franchise is one thing that I think that prohibits in many instances employees even thinking about unionizing because of our model of unionizing uh, in this country. It's a scale. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, again, um, and having been a part of the teachers union for my livelihood uh, for well over 30 something years, uh, I've been able to uh, experience firsthand uh, some of the trials and tribulations of what happens when you have small groups. Uh, like, for example, if you're in a rural area and you only have 120 teachers all total uh, in that community to large urban areas where you may have 50 or 60,000 teachers. Uh, you know, the contracts, the whole approach to how you work with management differs uh, in those two environments. So it's, I think it's, it's quite important for us to, especially those of us who have an interest in unionization, which I do, to look at some different types of models. And let me give you, uh, again, another example. The first uh, example I gave you was the uh, plant in, uh, or the warehouse in Alabama that uh, through Amazon, there was another Amazon warehouse in Staten Island uh, where they uh, attempted to unionize and were successful. The major difference between the two was that the Alabama warehouse was trying to uh, partner with a national union and the Staten Island folks were trying to establish their own local union. Mm. In other words, not affiliated with a state or a national, but basically take, and I think they had something to the tune of about 5,000 employees. It would have been those, an in-house shop. Yeah. You know, as a term of art, but let's call it, yeah, a you know, a local union, yep. uh, which I think people can relate to a little more. Um, mm -hmm. And so here it is. They were successful in establishing a local union. Now, what does that mean for them? Uh, basically, it's almost the same exact thing. They're going to be uh, negotiating with Amazon, both at the local level and at the national level, but they'll do it under the umbrella of uh, just us 5,000 employees not affiliated with anybody. And here are the things that we want at our facility. Now, in essence, when you look at the UAW, mm -hmm. the UAW actually uses that model. Most of us don't realize it, but each and every plant has a local contract. And then they'll have a national contract for the union at large. And the national contract also covers the relationship with the uh, you know, with the automaker on a national basis that has worked effectively uh, over the years for the UAW. As a matter of fact, the UAW uh, is probably and has set the gold standard in almost every single area of, mm. uh, of contract negotiations. Similarly, uh, Nick, your dad uh, did a very similar thing. 
when you're talking about the submariners down in Connecticut, their contract was different than the uh, aeronautics folks out in Arizona. It was different from the uh, sub uh, the the shipbuilders in Quincy, yeah, in Massachusetts, yeah. So that's what I mean. He 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 was all over. He was and and then and this is the way that it was structured. You had the International Union of Shipbuilders and Marine Workers. You had two or three different uh, unions operating mm -hmm. in every shop, mm -hmm. and you negotiated with all of them separately, individually, and nationally and locally, because yeah. you could not there. You know there. You know it was just. The way it was, I mean, the reality was there were different uh, requirements on the state level and there than there were on a federal level, but you had to cover both. Both had to be addressed and there could not be a conflict between one or the other unless it was agreed that one or the other would take precedence. Yeah. Usually it was the federal level. So and I but, think at the federal level, and again, this this is where history comes in, because it's that tension at the federal and national level, I think. Mm -hmm that has led to this uh, demonization, if you will, mm -hmm. of unions. Uh, and I think it's unfair. And I think the, the federal government has probably been a larger culprit in crushing unions nationally than the state and local uh, entities have been. And the other piece is that we keep using and hiding behind the term of capitalism that, uh, you know, and uh, and you used this term earlier, Nick, uh, when you were talking about the job creators, uh, I'm I'm often thrown back to the book that I'd love to hate, uh, which is uh, Ann Rand's book. Uh, Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. Shrugged. Yes. Even bigger. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. And when you talk about the job creators, are we talking about people with money or are we talking about the employees and their labor? You know, and that's always been a tension with me. And so, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't use the, uh, you know, uh, uh, terms like, you know, it, within capitalism as a sledgehammer against the employees. Uh, and then you, uh, you know, I remember from economics, uh, that, you know, the three things you need for, you, you know, in order to be a, a capitalist or uh, you need the uh, land, labor and money uh, or as we call it, capital. And uh, of the of the three, the most uh, easily replaced is labor. And, you know, I've I've never subscribed to that personally. Uh, because labor, no, I think we're seeing we're seeing now with you know goat employees ghosting employers and uh, employers being yes. unable to function, getting getting people to come in. Skilled labor, yeah, skilled labor. Yeah. They got skilled labor out there, but they're not going to accept your terms. Exactly, exactly. So, so I'm I'm looking forward to Labor Day uh, uh, simply because I think there is a need for us to remember what that day is really all about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we go back to, I mean, in this country alone, I mean, labor was established, labor unions, a lot of them were established through literal blood. You had mm -hmm. the Ludlow right. Massacre, you had the uh, Red Rouge, uh, you had quite a few instances where local governments and the companies came together and they banded together to keep the laborers down and 
there were instances where they there were people killed fighting for their rights. Right. So yeah. and that goes back to Keir Hardy in the United Kingdom and the establishment of trade unionism. Mm-hmm. People and marched, not, they died. And let's not forget the original sin of crushing labor, which was slavery. Oh, Right. Uh, and, you know, people, uh, I, you know, I think as Americans, we forget that it was the labor of slavery that built wealth from the 1600s on. And that wealth, much of it can still be seen today mm. uh, in the iron uh, mines, in mm. the steel mills, in the glass factories. And diamond, I, diamond mines, yeah, any or any or that's brought up is. I would encourage our listeners to read a book called Slavery by Another Name, and it demonstrates in the book how, uh, even though slavery may have ended, slave labor did mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. and that that labor still contributed to the building of the South, in particular cities like Atlanta, Birmingham, and uh, other major metropolitan, Memphis, uh, other major metropolitan areas where that labor, uh, which was basically free, turned into slaves, helped to continue to create wealth throughout Mm -hmm. the South in particular. No, it's it's been a a long and it's been a, a varied experience to say the least and i think labor labor unions have come up uh and they've come up with an attitude of we're protecting the labor and i think a good part of the decline in unionism in this country was due to the eventual some say inevitable corruption of those labors leaders and labor unions becoming just a tool for the government or just a tool for those who are running them I mean, obviously, the the obvious point is often the Teamsters. They mm. eventually had to be taken over by the government um, because of the corruption that ran ref- ran right through the union. Well, as they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There was some local uh, effects of that same thing. Um, my my first full time job goes back to the mid to late 60s. And um I worked in a small shop uh, TV station up in New Hampshire, and um, there were nine of us, you know, not not a giant group, but we were part of the then Boston uh, Technical uh, Union, which was uh, IBW 1228. Uh, Back in that day, uh, we were not being in the hustings. We were not being well served by a Boston local. And. So it was an issue of geography for the most part. And I was actually, believe it or not, the shop steward at the time. And uh, we were approached by the Teamsters. So here you had a case of actual competition across unions. And so the choice that was before us was, do we stick with the one we know? Do we move to another one that will claim to represent us more effectively? Uh, Or do we even consider an in-house shop? And at that point in time, management said, if an in-house shop is of any interest at all, you're within the bounds of the discussions that we can have, we will entertain that. That is, uh, if you so choose to do that, we will try to be as favorable as we can in the spirit of cooperation. 
ultimately the group did go with an in-house shop and quite successfully by the way i might add uh, management actually stuck to its guns and said okay we're going to take care of folks you know point taken lesson learned we're, we're going to step up and uh we came out of it with a very good agreement and that continued uh, as far as i know uh, ongoing um but it was also interesting because um, i dating it again prior to a significant date which was march 1969 part of what we had to do at that time were fill out cards of intent and the idea was that if you had enough cards to indicate the intent of the entire group a majority those cards would suddenly give the entity negotiating powers so in this case ibw asked us to fill out cards uh, we had enough of them to warrant IV, ibew's uh, entry into the negotiation which would have meant that we would have basically uh jettisoned i'm sorry the teamsters were the ones that that uh, had us fill out the cards which would have ended up jettisoning uh, ibw um, and also an in-house option but in march of 69 there was an interesting case uh, nationally where the national labor relations board mm -hmm. suddenly made a policy change quite quite frankly i think perhaps by accident or but not by intent but an attorney dominic minoli uh as a associate general counsel at nlrb basically broke one of the great powers of the unions which was the card check um the joy and, silk they used to call it or silk joy silk joy I believe that's it. right exactly yeah. um <laughs> yeah and 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 the net of it was when justice byron white said uh to explain how they applaud the how the doctrine applies and ultimately the justice said i don't care how many cards you've got i just don't like it to which uh minoli replied spontaneously that's right and in that conversation right there the whole concept of card checks went out the window with nlrb and it was right. then formalized and codified into law not long after that mm -hmm. the current administration is looking to in fact restore some of those tools uh, the concept of a card check as a document that removes all doubt with respect to an organization's uh, desire and right to have a union represent them. So we may be seeing the pendulum swing the other way, mm. uh, perhaps with a little more energy over the longer term. Mm. And I think that's going to be something over the next two years going into 2024 that will become an interesting story and perhaps find its way into the next presidential election. Yeah, and and let me make a real uh, sort of personal observation here. The card check, I think, has a, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Yes. On the one hand, if you get a majority of folks to say, yes, I want uh, the uh, IBEW to represent me, then, it's basically an election without an election, right? All you've done mm -hmm. is to go through and to ask people and have them fill out a card in some instances without very much knowledge of what their card really means. Right. On the other hand, it is an expression that I want somebody to represent me. These folks are putting a card in front of my face. I understand that it means unionization. I'm not clear that it means unionization in, in a, 
uh, very static kind of form. In other words, whoever's handing you the card will be your representative. I'm a believer that the employees ought to have the right to self-determination at every level. And that mm -hmm. means then they get to choose who they want to represent them, including uh, Pete, uh, whether or not we have a local or in-house union. I think that ought to be an option. And in right. some elections, as a matter of fact, when I was working elections, there were options, even if you had a majority of card signed that said, we want to have a representative. And in other words, after the ruling in the late 60s, you now had to, if you got people to fill out cards, there were three choice, four choices actually on the ballot in almost every single election. The two unions that were competing an in-house union and no union. Right. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, I think employees ought to have the ability to be able to choose. Uh, now, again, at the end of the day, you want a clear majority to be able to decide that not a plurality. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect of it. So I, I'm somewhat skeptical that, you know, the Biden administration and you're right, there is some thought and movement, on, especially in the House, toward that. Uh, but I'm somewhat skeptical that, again, I don't want the pendulum to swing too far back to where suddenly it's just a matter of filling out cards and no election. Uh, I think there really does need to be an election uh, in almost every single instance. But, at the, uh, uh, but on the other end of that, it's something I was going to mention earlier. There needs to be to some minimum kinds of labor protections. Now, the National Labor Relations Act theoretically provides those minimum protections at the federal level, but that's only for entities that engage in interstate commerce or are of a state government nature. When you look at uh, uh, state laws, many of the states don't have those minimum kinds of protections. Right. And I think that's where, if I'm in the labor movement, uh, which I'm not anymore, that's where I would start to focus my attention, uh, would be a uniform sort of uh, getting into state laws all across this country, minimum protections for those, for workers, no matter, you know, what size mm -hmm. industry you're in, uh, but just minimum protections for folks, uh, protections with regard to redress that you mentioned earlier, Nick, uh, protections with regard to uh, health insurance, universal health insurance, protections around minimum wage. Those kinds of, I think, the basic labor platforms are achievable and should be the, you know, where we are trying to go as a country. Your thoughts? Well, basically, with regard to that, I mean, for years, that was something that labor unions did push for, and they had strong lobby. They don't have strong lobbies any longer. There are very few. I mean, New York State Teachers uh, Union, yes. The New York uh, Police Union, yes. But they don't operate on a national level. And it, they need, the, the union has to be strong on both the state and the federal level in order to lob lobby effectively. And I think that's what needs to happen is either that or you're going to have to really find candidates for state and federal office who are dedicated almost solely to this because it's a full-time job trying to get yeah. those, that sort of legislation passed. It just has to, and you have, it takes years. Oh, you get yeah. voted out of office. The yeah. next guy says, I'm not going to do it. 
right. I'm not going to back this anymore. Right. So that's why the labor unions, a good, strong labor union can be effective. Uh, yeah. And I want to mention my friends, too, since you mentioned the folks over in New York, the Mass Teachers Association mm -hmm. or the uh, Massachusetts Police Association. You know, let's 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 give some credit to our home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always give credit to the union. Yeah, always. there you go. <laughs> I, I would also, uh, by the way, I think an important distinction here with respect to the NLRB, I personally think that the NLRB is something of a misnomer. It should be the N-E-N-L-R-B, the National Employer Labor Relations Board, because the NLRB is supposedly a neutral body that looks at, is the field of negotiation, the relationship between employer and employee, something that is in some form of reasonable balance within a capitalist system, um, which probably is one of the things that had Dominic Minoli pop up with, you know, the card check thing. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, within the NLRB, there are considerations for the employer's positions as there are for labor as well. So I, I think that we sometimes get off the rails when we think that the NLRB itself is going to be the organization that solves all of our labor woes or whatever. And yeah, I don't I, think that that's their place. No, that it, it yeah. never has been. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, Pete, that's that becomes a function of who's in power yes. uh, under the mm -hmm. Republicans. It's much more employer oriented yes. under Democrats. It's much more labor oriented. Mm -hmm. But it uh, but I agree with you. It I think over the years, it's lost its neutrality. You right. can't depend upon them for a reasonable, logical kind of decision anymore it's all going to be political uh based upon who's who's at the uh, uh who's pulling the strings mm -hmm. and it's been very much very much the case like with the recent activity with the supreme court where clearly it's mm -hmm. been politicized right i think i think that's been a steady state condition with nlrb right um, has, yeah right right yeah, it's highly political and just michael just to get back to one other point you made earlier about the use of the word job creators it Basically, it's it's an old, old term. I understand that. And it's something where when I use it now, I think of job creators. Yeah, let's take a look at Jeff Bezos, not to single him out. But yeah, let's single him out. And he did. He was an entrepreneur. That to me is what where we've got the job creators coming from now, entrepreneurs. And we have in the past. And Bezos took a chance, ran a bit, left a high paying job uh, in New York started a business in his garage, ran it out of his garage, ran at a loss for many, many years, but he kept getting, he kept getting backers and he took the chance. He staked his life on this being successful. He had a business plan. He stuck with it. And all of a sudden he begins to turn a profit. And now his profits become what some would say are obscene. So how do you go to him and say, all right, you created this, but you got to give back a a fair chunk of it to the people who are now benefiting from your creation of the jobs. And if you look at it that way, yeah, you say, yeah, he's, he's right. He should be able to hold on to what he's got. He took a chance and now he's got literally more money than anyone else in the world. Any well, individual. I, well, I wouldn't question that, Nick. I, no, yeah. you know, what I question is if, if I'm Jeff Bezos and let's take a look at his whole mode of operation. And he gets to a person who helps him to set up uh, and create a 
uh, a dispute a distribution algorithm and that person now who created that distribution algorithm he pays them and he continues to profit from it then the question becomes does the person who created the algorithm deserve continued uh remuneration for that or does now jeff bezos take that and say oh mm -hmm. no wait a minute i created that opportunity for you to mm -hmm. do that uh but that's now but that belongs to me intellectual well, that right. gets that gets into a great discussion about work for hire yeah um, exactly. and yeah. creativity work in for hire intellectual yeah. rights yeah. all of it and I so created I, it. Why don't I benefit? If if uh, you, you know, now we're old enough to remember the suggestion box. Uh huh. <laughs> it still exists. <laughs> and, well, well, I don't yeah. know if it exists this way. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, Nick, one of the ones that uh, uh, that I recall uh, was at General Dynamics. General Dynamics had a suggestion box to where if management or if any of their production facilities used your suggestion and that suggestion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then led to increased productivity or increased profits, you as the person who made the suggestion got rewarded for that, some of it on an ongoing basis. There was an incentive. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, now what they look at is you bring an employee in, and that's always been a, a standing thing. If you can bring an employee who lasts six months, we'll give you this. And right. it's not on an ongoing basis, but banking has that to a certain extent. If you make a referral to, in particular, to a high-end of, of a high-end client, say to a Merrill Lynch or a private bank, that sort of thing, and they stay with, you are eligible for a certain percentage of the income right. generated through that client right. for the time for the length of time you stay with the company once you leave that bank you lose that that benefit yeah but the, the like bank that. still makes the money yeah but so. still i i have been rewarded for uh uh for mm -hmm. that sales effort if you mm -hmm. will okay Correct. um and it's one of the things too that i look at uh, the union that i still belong to actually it's the only one that i belong to at this point which is the American Federation of Radio and Television Artists. Uh, I happen to be on hiatus, which means I don't have to pay dues every month uh, <laughs> unless I go back to work. <laughs> but for example, if if my voice or if my image uh, mm -hmm. is used, I get a remuneration for that. Mm -hmm. If uh, if that voice or my image is used by someone that I didn't originally contract with, they still have to pay me for that because mm -hmm. it's still my property. It's me. Mm -hmm. um, and I have always found that, uh, especially in some of the entertainment areas, some of the contracts that were forged in those areas are ones that could and should be used out in the uh, rest of the world as well. Uh, I know I've talked to a lot of college professors now when they are recording their, their courses. Well, if the university uses that that recording of my course to teach students five years from now should not be remunerated for that that comes down to copyright yes mm -hmm. right well it comes down to uh not copyright but ownership again of your image uh mm -hmm. and residuals you know how you you know if uh you, you know every time a uh uh a comedy is replayed in rerun mm -hmm. Uh, all of the people who were on those kinds of contracts get a check in the mail. 
Well, that was the famous case of Friends and David Schwimmer. Mm -hmm. Yes. David Schwimmer negotiated uh, basically executive producer rights for the entire six uh, member cast. So all six members of Friends were granted the equivalency of executive producer positions. Yes. So they continue to get residuals for the series, which is ongoing. Right. Uh, You know, so again, I'm, I know we're coming to the end of our time, and uh, I do want to applaud our country, our Labor Day, our labor unions, our labor movement, and say, even though we've had a, uh, uh, and we didn't talk about some of the history of the history of our unions, because uh, it's not all good either. Uh, <laughs> well, I think I might have touched on that. With you the did. Yeah. Mention of death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. But I must admit that, uh, again, if you have to look at, well, is there any hope for our country? I think it is in, in organized labor. It's in our belief that our people and our human resources have value. And I think our government should and can do more at every level to help protect our people. And, uh, uh, you know, happy Labor Day to all. Well said. Well said, Michael. Thank you. Yes. And happy Labor Day to everyone. I'll sign on to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, another more perfect union hour has flown by. Um, We have to say goodbye uh, until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Uh, You can also share or listen to this program, any of our other past episodes, particularly of uh, More Perfect Union, on our podcasts. And those are available online at our website, which is wfpr.fm. For our regulars, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with Peter J. I'm Nick Remesong saying goodbye. Thanks for listening, joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.